our passage details two reports on, two reactions to one scene. The subject of the reports is the same in both instances. What was seen is basically identical. The two parties report on, uh, on one scene. But unlike the story of the blind men coming up and feeling an elephant, each of them describing what they saw in different ways, one saying, feeling the side, it feels like a wall, another grasping the leg says, well, it feels like a tree, another feeling the trunk says snake, another one feeling the tusk says, well, it's got to be a spear. These parties report basically the same thing. Their experience of the elephant of what happened there, the elephant in the room is the same. The two reporting parties are the women, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. These two went to the grave early in the morning on the third day. The, the second group is the guards who were placed around the tomb by the priests at the, at the permission by the, uh, the leave of Pilate. The women go first at the direction of the angel. They meet at the tomb to report that the tomb is empty. Now the angel had said to them, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee where you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now as the two Marys are leaving, carrying out the angel's instructions on their way to to the disciples to tell them that the tomb is empty and that, that Jesus has risen and that they are to meet him at the place he had spoken of in Galilee. They meet Jesus who has risen. He is not willing to leave these Marys without knowledge. He appears to them first and he says, do not be afraid. Go and report to my brothers to leave for Galilee where they will see me. And so they've now been told twice to tell the disciples that they're to go to Galilee. They have seen Jesus. The others hear their report. So the women report to the disciples, an angel whose appearance was like lightning. That's how Matthew tells us this story. He says, well, they came back. I mean, he's not saying that here, but he was one of those witnesses, one of those, one of those disciples. They came and told us. They saw angels, appearance like lightning, clothes were white as snow. The tomb was open and empty with the grave clothes lying intact on the floor. Now they must have seen those grave clothes because they were ushered into the tomb. The angel said, look inside. And, they, and Peter, who likewise later was ushered into the tomb, Uh, saw those empty grave clothes, and so they must have seen it as well. They may have felt and also reported the earthquake that laid the tomb open. Chronology here, sequence is not entirely certain. Certainly, they reported meeting Jesus on their departure from the tomb. Finally, they repeated the instructions of both Jesus and the angel to go to a certain place in Galilee where Jesus would meet them. That's the report of the women. Their report, this report, was given to the disciples. So it's the women to the disciples. The second group to report on this same scene is the guards who were posted at the tomb ostensibly to keep Christ's disciples from coming and stealing his body. They had been posted on the second day, that is Saturday. They were posted there uh, and the tomb had been sealed on that second day when the chief priests and the Pharisees come to Pilate and ask him to post a guard. 
Evidently, they'd been thinking since the, the, the death of Christ at the crucifixion and thought, whoa, he might, something might happen. We need to guard that tomb. And so they go to Pilate and ask for a guard to be posted. Whether these guards are actually Roman soldiers or temple, temple guards is not entirely certain. In verse 12, they're called soldiers, which seems to indicate that they were not temple guards, but Roman soldiers. But they also report to the chief priests, suggesting perhaps temple guards. And Pilate says, you have guards. It's not certain what they were. They are a guard, which means they were members. This term that's used as guard is a member. It's a military term that refers to members of a phalanx, a Roman military group, the smallest denominator, like a company in the army or in the, in the Marines. A guard, four to 12 men who would take turns serving this function of guarding. It would not be the whole phalanx. It would be a subset often. Could it be the whole group? And they would take turns, two on, two off, three on, three off, three on, you know, whatever, watching the tomb. Of the Gospels, only Matthew tells us of the story of these guards and their report. Matthew is somewhat imprecise in his chronology, leaving us uncertain of the exact order of the events that he relates. A simple reading of Matthew suggests that the women arrive either before or immediately following the angel rolling away of the stone. They arrive, the stone is already rolled back or is in the process of the earthquake and the stone being rolled back. The angel is there. Or it may be that the stone uh, is rolled back and the angel appears after they've arrived. We don't know. The guards become like dead men entering what we would describe as a catatonic state induced by fear become like dead men. The angel, however, comforts the women and reveals to them the empty tomb, sends them off, whereupon they meet Jesus and speak with him. Meanwhile, this guard rises up from lying like dead men from their catatonic state, and they make their own way into Jerusalem to report. They report to the chief priests, quote unquote, all that had happened, all that had happened. All that had happened, well, that must certainly include the earthquake, the rolling back of the stone, the sealing of the tomb being broken, the angel and the angel's appearance like lightning, bristling with power and light, clothing white as snow, the empty tomb, the, the intact but disposed of grave clothes, and, of course, they must have reported the women arriving and speaking with the angel as they're lying like dead men. No disciples are reported. No stories of men assaulting them with swords. It is clearly, in their eyes, a miracle. They report a miracle and at least a missing body. If they had not seen Jesus physically rise, they were at least aware that the body as a result of this miraculous activity, was no longer there. And now miracles had surrounded the ministry of Jesus for many years. This is not new stuff, nor is it novel for the ministry and the life of Jesus. Most recently and spectacularly, he has raised Lazarus from the dead. 
He has brought Lazarus, who had been dead for days, back to life, and it is a great miracle, such a great miracle that all the leaders in Jerusalem, all these people to whom the soldiers reported said, look, if he does this kind of thing, we can do nothing. The whole world has gone to him. It is a great miracle, a great sign. They don't even deny it. They just say, look, we can't win if he keeps on like this. And they think of ways that they can kill him. Jesus has said he would rise. These men know it. They say, <laughs> they even tell Pilate, they mock him on the cross. If Come on down. Are you going to rise again? Come on down. And they say to Pilate that he had said he would rise. That was the reason they gave for posting the guard. They knew he had said it. An angel comes, an earthquake, that's what they're told by the soldiers. These things following what they experienced, the dead rising after Christ's death on Friday, walking the streets of Jerusalem, the earthquake, the darkness, the eclipse at noon, the people saying at the grave, surely, the centurion and the other soldiers saying, surely this was the son of God. So there have been many miraculous and mysterious phenomena surrounding the death of Jesus. So many that even pagans are saying this is the son of God. We don't know that in this particular instance, Sunday morning, the resurrection of Christ, that both groups report the same thing about Jesus. Because the women, we are told, see him and talk to him. That is not reported of the soldiers. We don't know what they saw. We don't know what they heard. We don't know whether they were parties to that. We don't know if they saw Jesus come out of the tomb. We don't know particularly what they report in this one area. Personally, I, I suspect the soldiers didn't see it. I don't think God, you know, it was a privilege to see the risen Jesus. And I don't think that God gave them that privilege. He saw, they saw all the surroundings. They saw the empty tomb. <laughs> like your kids with the wrapper of the candy bar. You see the wrapper, you see the, the crumbs, you see these things. You don't get the candy bar. Uh, these, these guys, they don't get the candy bar. They, get, they see the wrapper, they see all the evidence, but they're not allowed to see it. That's my feeling. They report that they were unable to keep him in the tomb. That much is clear. And from the story that the chief priests made up and that they pay these guards a significant amount of money to tell. Why a significant amount of money? Because if they're Roman soldiers and they failed in their duty, they might be in trouble. And so they're bribed to say a, a report that's not true. They're bribed, the chief priests make up a story, pay the guards to tell it that the disciples had come and stolen away the body. Now, it's, it's clear that the chief priests are making a bargain in order to conceal the truth. It's evident to all, you know. Everyone in this equation is saying, yeah, 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 this is what we're going to say. Let's get our story straight. Let's make sure that we're saying the same thing. Get your story straight. The disciples came. One of you was off using the toilet in the woods. Another one was paying attention to a cut in his fingernail. And suddenly they came and bang, we were caught by surprise. They stole the body and ran away. Whatever the story was, it's that kind of thing. 
come up with a logical explanation of why Jesus, that body is missing, other than the obvious, which is that he had said he'd rise. What they had seen, the power of God from on high coming down to bring Jesus out of the grave. So the same scene is reported by two different groups. Two reports on the same scene and a great deal of overlap between the reports. A great miracle, an angel from heaven bristling with light and glory and power, a violent earthquake, a stone rolled back, and an empty tomb. Yet, despite the similarity between the reports and the identical nature of the scene described, the reaction to the two reports is dramatically different. And I make this point to underscore for you this morning what God wants of you as you think about and dwell in your mind on the story of Easter that Jesus arose from the tomb. There are basically two paths you can go with this story. And they are illustrated before us here in these two parties in the way they react to the same basic message. You will go one way or you'll go the other and the way you go in your response to this is the way that you will live the rest of your life and your eternity. It is important what you do with this message. Same story, same scene, two reactions. The women and the disciples, the women, they heed the angel and Christ, both of whom had told them to take news of the resurrection to the disciples and to tell the disciples to go to Galilee where Jesus would appear to them. Now, just as Matthew differs from the other authors of the, gospel, of the other three gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, in, in relating the story of the guards, which isn't found in any of the other gospels, he differs in what he says about the subsequent events as well. It gives much less detail than the other three, especially less than John, about what followed Christ's resurrection. In the few verses that Matthew spends on telling the events that followed the resurrection, he telescopes a lot of things together and presents just a few basic key events rather than telling a strict chronological story. Now, the other gospels make clear that doubt proliferates among the disciples at first, especially while they remain at Jerusalem. Jesus does appear to them in Jerusalem, but Thomas is not present at his first appearance, and he doubts the reports, gaining thereby the name Doubting Thomas. Following events in Jerusalem, the disciples do go up to Galilee. The 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, we are told, but some were doubtful. Appears from John in his recollecting of these events, because he was also a, a witness, that following the trip north to Galilee, maybe to Mount Tabor, the traditional site of the, of the transfiguration of Christ, that Jesus and the disciples return again south to Bethany. So they go from Jerusalem up north, then come back south. It's almost as though Jesus says, I'm not going to leave the place where I grew up and where much of my ministry is in the dark. I'm going to go up there, and then I'm going to come back here. And he ascends, it's clear, from the Mount of Bethany, probably the Mount of Olives. Luke tells us in Acts that between his resurrection and the ascension, Jesus spent 40 days. 
40 days, almost six weeks, speaking to the disciples of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Imagine how fruitful those weeks would have been if you had been one of Christ's disciples, seeing him die, knowing he rose, and then having him say, okay, imagine how that would transform your life, those 40 days with Jesus. Then gathering the apostles in Jerusalem, together, it seems from Luke, with the women, they're not left out of the ascension. The women who had been following, the women who were the first to see his resurrection, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the, what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And it's interesting to, to, to realize that that baptism with the Holy Spirit is finally the, the spark that ignites the church. That even being with Jesus these 40 days does not spark the church into its explosion across the world the way receiving the Holy Spirit does. God give us the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus says, pray for the Holy Spirit. Pray that God gives you the Holy Spirit. Pray that he gives you his spirit. So we ask, what is faith? If faith separates the reaction of the women and the disciples to the news of the resurrection from that of the chief priests and the Pharisees, what do we learn about faith from the reaction of the women and from the reaction of the disciples in distinction from the reaction of the Pharisees and the chief priests? First, let me say, faith is not a special form of knowledge. We have very frequently in our minds and in the, in the church today identified faith with knowledge. That if you know something, you have faith. It's not true. Knowledge is not faith. It's not some kind of deep knowledge. It's, faith is not like insider privilege or insider trading. <laughs> Over the last few years, there's been constant revelation in the news of bureaucrats and government officials trading on what they know about COVID and what's going to happen to the banks. More recently, it was the bank failures and making very well-timed investments or very well-timed sales of stocks because they know things. All of us want some kind of insider knowledge. I want to know from the inside. God doesn't traffic in insider knowledge. God has not given... The select few, the Illuminati, the ones who know the insights and restricted them from ever. God displays it before the whole world. Faith is not knowledge. God gives the priests, God gives the Pharisees, God gives the elders of the Jews the same knowledge of the resurrection that he gives the disciples. The disciples know no more about it than the priests. You understand that? The priests know everything the disciples know. Everything. Knowledge is not faith. Deep knowledge, inside knowledge, special knowledge, privileged knowledge. They just don't exist in the kingdom of God. This knowledge is open to you. It's not restricted. There is no exclusive insider knowledge to Christ. The God who causes the universe to declare his glory, who 
sends the morning sun up to declare his glory and the, the moon by night and the stars and who lets every living creature display his immensity is not a God who is hiding himself from you. He's not restricted his knowledge of himself to his few friends. He shouts it. Day after day, the universe proclaims it. Night after night, the heavens declare knowledge. Nor has God hidden the news of his resurrection, of his son's resurrection. God has caused the death of his son, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the most important, pivotal moment in the history of all time and maybe of eternity to be given to you. He has given you the same knowledge he gave his disciples. You know everything they knew. You know everything that the priests knew. The priests knew the same thing as the disciples. He gave the Roman centurion at the grave, the thief on the cross who was being crucified for his crimes at the side of Christ who repented, knowledge of Jesus. God is not restricting knowledge. And faith is not the product of someone having deeper knowledge. Second thing we see about faith from our passage is also negative. Faith is not knowledge, neither is faith the lack of doubt. Faith is not a special knowledge, nor is faith a lack of doubt. Matthew tells us, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Now we know that some were doubtful right off the bat. Doubting Thomas was doubtful right off the bat. The other disciples saw Jesus, he comes back and they say, we saw the Lord. And he says, yeah, all right. You let me put my finger in his side and through the poles in his hand and I'll believe you, but until then I'm not gonna believe this. A fairly logical answer. Not a faithful answer, but still a truthful answer. He's no hypocrite, is he? So Jesus comes into the room a few days later where Thomas is and says, hey, Thomas, here I am. Put your fingers in my side. Put your fingers in my hand. You need to do it, do it. Thomas says, my Lord, my God, no, I don't need to. All right. Then the disciples go up north and something kind of inexplicable to my mind happens because the disciples all down in Jerusalem, down south, seem to know that Jesus has risen. They seem to have seen him. They seem to be thoroughly accepting of this miracle and the, the implications of it for their lives. But when they go up north, they go, well, what are we doing here? And they actually go and they get their fishing boats and they go back to fishing. And so I'm of the opinion, you don't have to agree with me on this, but I'm kind of of the opinion that this statement, but some doubt it, is not true of just Thomas at that one brief moment, but that for a period of time, all the disciples are going, did it really happen? Did this thing really, really happen? You know, 
Is this a mass delusion? Have you ever had anything so good happen to you in your life that you, you wake up the next day and you say, I think that was a dream? <laughs> I remember being in a play when I was a kid, like ninth, tenth grade. And it was horrible, horrible, horrible. Mothers don't ever let your kids take part in plays, especially if they don't learn the lines. And uh, at the end of the play, we actually stumbled through it and actually did the play. I think the cutest girl in the school came up and kissed me. But you know, I'm just not sure if that really happened or not. <laughs> I thought to myself, that could have been just a dream. You ever had anything like that? No, I guess I'm the only one here who thinks, yeah? <laughs> have you ever had anything good happen to you? So good that you say, how'd this happen? <laughs> Look, I see some of you guys, I'm looking at one right now, that married pretty girls, and I say, how'd that ever happen, all right? <laughs> some of you guys should at least know what I'm talking about. And so maybe these disciples are going, oh, wait, yeah, did this. I really do think that they go north and they're going, what is this? Did this really happen? And what we see is that faith is not radical certainty. Faith is not knowing what others don't know. Faith is not some form of radical certainty. Disciples all doubt it and needed further and repeated convincing. They all knew that Jesus had said he'd rise from the dead, right? And so did the chief priests and the Pharisees. We must emphasize this because among us this morning are some who are fully convinced of the truth of Christ's resurrection, some who are fully convinced of his coming return, and who are living under that conviction. But there are some here who doubt. There are some who say, yeah, but is it for me, or did it really? And so there's echoing doubts in your heart. You're not as fully convinced of others. And what we need to see from our passage is that doubt, now the Bible says he who believes must not doubt, but the Bible also makes very clear that you will doubt, that faith is not inconsistent with doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt, but the opposition to doubt. The defeat of doubt over time. It's the battle with doubt. That's faith. It's not radical certainty that goes like some kind of crazy form of life transforming knowledge. Ah, oh, now I know. Faith is faith because it sees in the dark what it will one day be seen in the light. Because it believes not having seen what one day it will believe having seen it. Right? And so it's inherent in faith that there's going to be at least room for doubt. And so I, I must say to you, this, from the example of the elders, or of the, not the elders, of the apostles here, that faith and doubt exist together until the day when Christ returns. Here on faith, here on earth, faith contends with doubt. In heaven, there will be no need for faith because we'll see We'll see things fully and we won't be living by faith. Here on faith, you're going to have to fight your doubt. So what transforms the doubt of the disciples into faith and makes it power 
when the doubt of the priests and the Pharisees becomes sin and death. Isn't it clear what is the difference? Isn't it clear that what transforms this doubting faith of the disciples from the doubting denial of, of the chief priests and the Pharisees? They both know the same thing, right? Isn't it true that what turns faith into faith is hope? The, the disciples hope that this is true. They want this to be true. They want to believe that God has a great future for them. They want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that thus they will rise from the dead as well. They want eternal life. They're not certain. They're not totally beyond doubt, but they want Jesus. And so they suspend their doubt and they live obediently and they do what Jesus has commanded them. They still doubt up north. They've gone north because they say, well, he told us to go north, but even up north they're saying, but is he really going to show? Is it real? Is it, is it true? So there's this mingling of, of confidence and doubt. Do you have hopes that this life can't satisfy? Do you have needs that only God can fulfill? If so, then you're in the place where God is calling you to exercise faith. You are the woman with the chronic bleed who came up and in her doubting faith touched Jesus and said, I know if I get near, there'll be something good for me and was healed. <laughs> you are the lepers who came to Jesus and said, Lord, Lord, heal us. You're blind Bartimaeus, that man who was blind and couldn't even see Jesus but heard he was passing by and who screamed at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, come here and have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. He has a need. He has hope. He knows that Jesus is coming. He's heard things. Is he confident beyond any doubt? Obviously not. But he has hope. You're the father of that little dead girl who when Jesus said to him, when others said, she's dead, don't bother the teacher, he can't do anything now, she's dead. Jesus says to this father who's come to him to heal this little girl who's on the brink of death, then he hears that she's died. Jesus says to him, only believe and do not doubt. And he says to Jesus, you know what he says? Well, he doesn't say, Jesus, I'm firm in my faith, I'm firm, I believe. I he doesn't say that at all. He says what many of you are saying about God's promises saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, help me. God, help us to believe, help us to see our hopes answered. This is faith, this is faith. The other guys, okay, I, I just wanna end. I wanna say the other guys, what a tragedy. They don't hope in Jesus because they live for this world. They think money can answer everything. They think money is all you need. And money is not what you need. If your deepest hopes and dreams and wishes can be satisfied with money, then you're blinkered, blind. You don't see the glory of Jesus Christ. God, help us to hope in Jesus. God, help us in our unbelief. 
God, help us to turn to Jesus and to find the power of Jesus in our questioning, longing, doubting, but believing lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, this glorious Savior that you've given us. And I pray, Father, that everyone here this morning will hope in Jesus, come to eternal life by hoping against doubt, Father, that Jesus is the answer, that his power is real, and that his resurrection can be ours. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.